Well, good morning. We'll get started. Uh, Let me pray for our uh, time together. Thanks for being here uh, this morning. Father, thank you so much for uh, your love for us. Thank you for uh, the grace that you have bestowed upon us in your son, even as uh, Zach will uh, preach about uh, that grace uh, here in a little bit. Lord, we uh, are gathered together this morning because you have been gracious and merciful to us. You are a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, and you show steadfast love uh, to your people. And so we're grateful. We're grateful for an opportunity to gather together this morning and to consider uh, your word, uh, to consider uh, better how we might uh, study it, uh, to have it press upon our lives, uh, that we might Uh, worship you more fully. And so would you help us this morning? Would you meet with us through your spirit uh, as we consider these things? And so uh, we do love you. We pray for those who aren't with us with the holiday weekend and uh, just ask for your grace and your mercy wherever they might be. And so uh, we pray these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we have been, uh, in this semester we've been doing bibliology and hermeneutics. Bibliology uh, is the study of God's word. Uh, hermeneutics is uh, how do we interpret it, how do we study it, uh, those sorts of questions. We're in the midst of uh, hermeneutics, uh, how do we study God's word. And so what we'll do over the next four weeks uh, is basically we'll kind of outline, you might have heard of the inductive Bible study process. We'll kind of outline what is the steps that we go through in order to study God's word. And so uh, this week we'll talk about uh, interpretation, or sorry, observation, uh, and then we will uh, we'll have an opportunity for us to kind of consider some logical fallacies, as we did a few weeks back. We considered exegetical fallacies. Zach will be with us next week and talk about uh, some logical fallacies. Uh, we might read a passage and find a contradiction in there uh, or uh, those sorts of things. And so we'll do that. And then we'll do interpretation. And then Jerry will actually be teaching, and he'll teach us uh, some applications. So observation, interpretation, application, these are kind of the steps in the process. If you, if you are, kind of think of the analogy of building a house. What we're doing in observation is we're kind of clearing the land and laying a foundation, right? And, and so your house is only going to be strong as the foundation. And so observation, although it probably is the step of Bible study that's the most neglected, is probably one of the most essential uh, steps in the process. So that's observation. It's kind of laying, uh, clearing the land, gathering together the blueprints, laying a foundation, those kinds of things. Interpretation is where we actually build the house, and then application is when you actually move into uh, the house. And so that's what we'll be going over the next uh, few weeks. And so uh, to get us kind of kicked off and and started, to get the brain going a little bit, I wanted to give us an exercise. And so one of the times when I was in uh, South Sudan, I uh, was teaching how to study the Bible to some uh, Sudanese uh, ministry leaders and so forth, and, uh, and so I uh, at one point got this uh, other guy, my interpreter, uh, to come and to stand next to me, and I told the people in the crowd, I said, make different observations uh, about him and about me and so forth, and so they were coming up with all these different observations, and then they, they got to me, and they said, well, he is very skinny, and you are very fat, <laughs> and, and I thought, well, that's rude. <laughs> I've never been called very fat before. Uh, but, uh, but that was their, you know, way kind of in the Eastern sort of culture way of, uh, of being appreciative and so forth. I, uh, there was a, a good buddy of mine who's 
father-in-law is a Japanese, and I, so I told the story uh, in a sermon a few weeks back of having sushi and so forth and eating chicken heart and all that kind of stuff. The same guy, uh, he saw me a couple of years later in the States after I'd been married to Casey for a couple of years, and the first thing he said to me is, you look very fat. And uh, that was his way of saying, your wife has taken care of you, and so forth. So it was a compliment. Uh, but in our culture, that's not taken as a compliment. So risking that you are going to uh, call me fat or uh, any other thing like that, I just want to give uh, a couple of minutes. So literally going to give two minutes, and I want you to do this. I want you to just make as many observations about this room as you possibly can. All right, you can write them down if you want. You can remember them. You don't have to remember them. Whatever it might be, you can use a partner if you want. You don't have to. So for two minutes, I'm not going to talk, and I want you to just look around and make as many observations as you possibly can. All right, go. Okay, somebody throw out an observation. Brian has something in his eye. That's true. That, yeah. What else? I'm sorry? Baby grand piano. Yeah. Did anybody count the number of people in the room? 42. 42. There you go. Brian, even with a, a busted up eye, he's got that. Uh, anybody count the number of lights? No? Okay. What about the number of colors in the stained glass window? Right? There's all kinds of observations we could have made. You could have uh, counted the number of men versus women. You could have counted the number of adults versus uh, youth or children or whatever it might be. On and on we could go. You count the number of people with blonde hair, with uh, dark hair. You could say what color everybody's shirt is, what shoes they are, and so forth. And so, uh, obviously, if you were to, if there was like something riding on this, like let's say I, I said I'll give $100,000 to whoever comes up with the most observations, you probably would have gotten up from your seat and walked around and gotten on uh, all fours and kind of looked everywhere and so forth. And, uh, and so that's what observation is. It's taking notice uh, of various things. And so I want to talk about why this is so important. Again, this is probably the most neglected step to Bible study, but it's the most important step uh, for this reason, because careful observation is going to help guard your interpretation. Careful observation is going to help guard your interpretation. We want, naturally, we want to get to the stage of saying, what do I do with this? We are very applicational people, all right? Especially in Western evangelical Christianity, we want to know, okay, what do I do with this? Uh, we want to know not just the implications of the text, but the application of the text. But before we can get to what do I do with it, you have to know what does it actually mean, right? Because otherwise you're going to misapply it. You're going to be doing something with it that you shouldn't be doing with it because you don't know what it means. But in order to get to what does it mean, you have to notice what does it actually say? What is actually uh, there? And so you do that on the basis of what do I actually see? So observation is a, a very sight sort of specific thing. What do I see in the actual text before me? The problem that we have is that, again, we try to jump to application before we've actually made uh, the proper observations, uh, and thus uh, we are in danger of applying, uh, misapplying uh, our interpretations. And so uh, uh, let me give you uh, a couple of uh, examples of this, or one in particular, all right? So you get on a plane, all right? Who here has ever flown? All right? 
Who here has flown multiple times? Is anybody, it's kind of like just second nature for you? You maybe fly for work or you just fly all the time and so forth. All right. So you get on a plane. How often do you actually look and see where all the exit rows are? Right? Probably most of us don't do that all that often. Some of us might. Some of us might be very OCD and look and so forth. Now, uh, the vast majority of the time, is that going to be a big deal? No. The vast majority of the time, you don't need to use the exit rows. When would you need to use the exit rows? If there was an emergency, in that particular case, would you need those exit rows? Yeah, so, so we have this tendency to kind of go to the lowest common denominator. I only want to observe what I think is most important for me. And so 100% of the time when I get on a plane right now, I don't look for the exit rows. The problem is there could be that uh, particular event or circumstance where that is not only going to be important for me, that's going to be essential Uh, for me. And so in studying the Bible, what we tend to do is we tend to look at the Bible the same way we tend to get on a plane. We have already predetermined what is and is not important. So we fail to make observations because we've already determined that those observations are not important. And so what we need to do in this step is kind of retrain our minds to notice everything to notice everything. We want to, in, in a sense, be like Sherlock Holmes. If you've ever watched uh, those uh, shows or read any of those books and so forth, we want to be like him, just this mind that's, abil- that, that's able to kind of notice every little detail and to begin to pull information from that. That's the way that we want to read the Bible. So we've talked about this before, that our biggest threat, our biggest danger Uh, in regards to interpreting Scripture correctly is making assumptions. Presuppositions, assumptions, and so forth are going to lead us astray as we seek to interpret Scripture. Zach talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. If I just ask you to draw a picture of Humpty Dumpty, what do you tend to draw? An egg, even though there's nothing explicitly in the text itself that says that Humpty Dumpty is an egg. We just naturally assume that because of other things that we've read, children's books that we've seen, whatever it might be, uh, Through the Looking Glass by uh, the Alice in Wonderland story and so forth, all of these different things have, have kind of led us in a direction that's not actually explicitly in the text. And we do this all the time uh, with, uh, with Scripture. So in uh, the Christmas season, you will see nativity scenes everywhere. You'll see mangers everywhere. And the vast majority of them, we talked about this if you were here for the Christmas sermon, the vast majority of them uh, are, are actually not all that accurate. They're not actually all that accurate. Uh, you'll notice there is always a particular number of magi. What number is that? Three. Does the Bible say that there are three magi? No, it just says that they bring three particular gifts. It could have been uh, two magi that bring three gifts. It could have been a hundred magi that bring three gifts. The Bible doesn't explicitly say, but we just naturally think uh, there is uh, three. Uh, same thing by thinking that the manger is a barn. What's a manger actually. It's like a feeding trough, right? And so we think of the manger. If you ask somebody what's a manger, by and large, they'll think of it as being a barn or something like that. That's not what the word manger uh, means. Even the fact that the wise men are at the manger. If you read uh, the Bible carefully, when do the wise men actually show up? When Jesus is about probably two years old or so, all right? So hopefully he's not still laying in the same trough that he was born in, Two years later, it's child neglect or something like that. And so, but we just have this natural uh, tendency to make these assumptions about uh, the text. You ever heard somebody talk about 
the virgin birth and call it the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception has nothing to do with Jesus' birth. It has everything to do with the Roman Catholic doctrine that Mary was conceived without sin. It has nothing to do with the conception of Jesus. It has everything to do with Mary's uh, uh, conception. Uh, also, another one uh, that I think is interesting, if you were to draw a picture, if I asked you to draw a picture of Paul in his Damascus Road experience, you would draw Paul laying down on the road, and then next to him would be a horse. Do you think that Acts actually mentions a horse? No, it actually doesn't. Neither does Galatians or any of the other places where Paul is going to uh, recount this. Never does he mention that he was on a horse. For all we know, he was walking down the road, and he simply fell. The Bible just says that he fell. It doesn't say that he fell off a horse or anything else, a donkey, anything else like that. So there are all of these things that we just assume, we think we know, all of these Bible passages as well. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Now that idea is certainly in Scripture. Uh, there, is, there are certainly a number of texts, there's a plethora of texts about uh, disciplining your kids, but that particular uh, way of saying it is nowhere in uh, Scripture. The lion will lay down with the lamb. That's nowhere in Scripture. It says the wolf will lay down uh, with the lamb. Pride comes before the fall. You ever heard that? That's not actually in the Scripture. The, the Scripture says that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. But again, we have this way of just kind of not making really accurate uh, observations. And so what we want to do today is to kind of help us train ourselves a little bit better or retrain ourselves uh, to make proper observations of uh, the text. And so let me give you a definition. Observation is the act of taking notice of details, the act of taking notice of details to determine what a passage says. The act of taking notice of details to determine what a passage says. I think that's on your handout. In essence, if you will, what we're doing here is we're gathering kindling. All right, that's all we're doing here. We're not starting the actual fire. We're simply going around Throughout the forest, we're getting as much wood as we possibly can. We're putting that there in a big pile. And then in later steps, we'll actually light the fire. But you notice how, if you're going to build a fire, how important the step is of gathering kindling. That's what we're doing here in observation. We're gathering as much as we possibly can uh, in light of the fact that over and over and over and over and over throughout Scripture, God is going to say, behold, behold, take notice, pay attention to. So what we're going to be talking about is this act of observation and what is it that we're observing. I want us to get into this rhythm of observing everything, absolutely everything. This, the goal in observation is not to figure out what is and is not significant. That's in, in future uh, steps of the process and interpretation and so forth. The goal of observation is just to simply see what's there. Whether it's relevant or significant or so forth is irrelevant to this particular step. You want to just gather as much information as you uh, possibly can. In, in essence, it's like panning for gold. Right? And if you're panning for gold, what are you doing? You're going and you're scooping as much as you can out, and then you're sifting. Later processes are sifting out and going to figure out what is the gold and what is just dirt and so forth. But that initial sort of scooping process is what we're doing uh, here. And I love Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. I think it kind of gives us this heart uh, that longs for this sort of process. Proverbs 2 says this, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, 
and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. There's this process, there's this longing of seeking and searching and so forth. That's what observation is. Uh, it's that process. And in order for us to, uh, to really be observational students of Scripture, there are three virtues that we need to have. Three virtues that we need to have. The first one is desire. You have to want to work at this. Like if you sit down at your Bible and this is some sort of begrudging task for you, you're not going to be a very good observation, uh, observer of Scripture. This is something that you have to desire. This is something that you have to want. And so this is uh, Robert Traina, who wrote a, a famous book on Bible study. He says this, Unwilled observation is soon satiated and goes to sleep. Willed observation, vision with executive force behind it, is full of discernment and is continually making discoveries which keep the mind alert and interested. Get a will behind the eye, and the eye becomes a searchlight. The familiar is made to disclose undreamed uh, treasure. Right. So the first one, desire. You have to want to work at this. The second one, precision. In addition to desire, precision. Your interpretation and application are going to be dependent on your observations. So if you err in this stage, if you err in your observations, you're going to err in later stages. So we need to be precise. We need to be accurate. This takes intentionality. This takes this commitment to slow down in the text. Right? So a, a number of us probably utilize reading plans, Bible reading plans. I use a Bible reading plan. The problem with Bible reading plans is that they uh, are most dependent not on making observations, not on slowing down. They're most dependent on just moving you through the text even if that is much too quickly for you to actually study it and digest it uh, and so forth. And so most of us kind of read and read Scripture kind of like we watch TV, right? The vast majority of the time we watch TV, it's just kind of a passive sort of thing. You're sitting there, you're just simply receiving, 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 receiving. You're not actually engaging with what's on the screen. Likewise, most of us, if we're not careful, the natural way of just reading is going to be you're just receiving, 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 never actually engaging. Consider how frustrating it would be if your buddy or your spouse or whoever, every time they watched a movie, like when there was something significant, they would pause it. And then they would like journal about it. And then they'd rewind it. And they oh, I want to watch that again. Oh, yeah, do you notice that? And they're asking you questions and so forth. That's a very frustrating person to watch a movie with. But that is the exact way that we should read Scripture. Pause. I'm going to sit in this for a second. Rewind. I'm going to go back and I'm going to reread it. Okay, now I'm going to move on. I'm going to fast forward because I think there's something coming. I'm going to rewind again. That's the way that we should be reading Scripture. So in light of this sort of call for us to be precise, I want to tell you a story. This is kind of a legendary story. Who knows if there's actually any actual truth behind it. I've heard uh, over and over on the internet and so forth, people who you know, swore that their friend was in a class where this happened uh, and so forth. But uh, anyway, there was uh, this story of this doctor, and uh, this doctor was uh, dealing with some uh, uh, students, and, uh, and they were about to get their medical license. And so in part of the process of kind of showing them and teaching them the rounds and so forth, he had this sample of urine. And in this sample of urine, he said, one of the things that you can really do is you can test a lot of times. 
someone's pH and so forth, and you can kind of know some of the conditions that they might struggle with simply by tasting the urine. And so he goes and he puts a finger in, and then he takes that finger and he licks it, and he says, now you go and do likewise. And so all the students, they go and they do the same, and he said, you've missed the very first rule, and that is to actually observe What am I actually doing? Because what he had done is he had taken the middle finger and dipped that in and taken his index finger and licked it. Well, the other students had not done that, all right? So we want to be precise. We want to be precise in the way that we, I've heard that story with blood, chemical compounds, all kinds of things. Again, who knows it's true. So we need not only desire, but we need uh, precision. And then lastly, perseverance. Uh, often the early stages are going to feel like a fog uh, to us. It, it can be easy for us to kind of turn around or to think, I've got enough here. So I wanted to read a quote uh, from uh, Martin Luther uh, about the way that he interprets Scripture and so forth. First, I shake the whole apple tree that the ripest might fall. Then I climb the tree and shake each limb and then each branch and then each twig and then I look under each leaf. It's that sort of a disposition of the heart that actually created the context for the Reformation. You might have heard the story before of Luther saying uh, that I grabbed a hold of Paul. I grabbed a hold of Paul and I would not let him go. I wrestled with him. I struggled with him until he relented and told me what he meant in Romans chapter 1 of the righteousness of God, which was the moment that set his life on a different trajectory and change the entirety of church history and so forth. It's that sort of commitment uh, to perseverance. So with that kind of a groundwork laid, you get up in the morning, all right, assuming that you read Scripture in the morning. Some of you might do it in the evening or in the afternoon. There's no time that's uh, necessarily better than the other depending on your schedule and that kind of stuff. But let's assume you get up in the morning, you go, you grab a cup of coffee, you take it into wherever it is that you read, you sit down, what is it that you do? Well, first thing, you pray, right? You, 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 there's this recognition that you're dependent upon the Lord for making observations, for interpreting, for applying. For every step of the process, you are absolutely dependent upon uh, the Lord. So you pray. Then you pick a text. Maybe it's part of a Bible reading plan. Maybe it's the text that you know that we're going to be preaching this next weekend. You pick a text, and you read it. And then you read it again, and then you read it again, and then you read it again. A.T. Pearson, who was a a somewhat famous 19th century preacher said this, when I read this passage for the 100th time, the following idea came to me. We're to have that sort of spirit of reading over and over and over and over again. The more that we read, uh, the more that we are able to observe. It's like if I were to give you, instead of two minutes, if I were to give you 15 minutes or 30 minutes to make observations in the room, you would see how your observations would grow and grow and grow and grow Next thing you do is you establish uh, the context. We've talked about this before in regards to knowing what's the genre here. Zach talked about that a few weeks back. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, I encourage you to to go back and listen to that audio. What's the genre here? What's the kind of rules? Each genre has its own sort of rules for interpretation, and, and it's going to kind of give us some clues about what is and is not going to be uh, important as far as observations Go, But we've talked about this before. If I just asked you, draw a picture of a trunk, 
you can imagine that there might be five, six, seven different things that people draw. Some people might draw swimming trunks. Some people might draw uh, like some sort of chest. Some people might draw uh, the trunk of a person, the trunk of a tree, the trunk of an elephant, whatever it might be. Context is going to give us uh, those sorts of things. So that's the first thing you're going to do after you uh, read the text is you're going to uh, kind of work through what's the context here. And then you're going to start with obvious questions, kind of peppering the text with questions. Who, what, when, where, why, those sorts of things. Kind of like uh, a good marriage or a good friendship are going to, it's going to kind of be dependent upon you asking good questions of your spouse or your friend or whatever it might be. It's not a very good relationship if it's uh, not very communicative. And so uh, asking questions of the text over and over and over, who wrote it? Who wrote this text? Who said it? We have a quotation here. Who is the author of that? Who are the major characters? Who are the people mentioned? To whom is the author speaking? About whom is he speaking? What are the main events? What are the major ideas? What are the major teachings? What are these people like? What does he talk about the most? When was it written? When did this event take place? When will it happen? When did he say it? When did he do it? Where was this done? Where was this said? Where will it happen? Why was there a need for this to be written? Why was this mentioned? Uh, Why was so much or so little space devoted to this particular event or teaching? Uh, So forth. How is it done? How will it happen? How is this truth illustrated? These are the kinds of questions that you're asking as you kind of engage the text, making observations over and over and over. So let me give you a few examples of things that you should observe within the text. Uh, And then I want to spend uh, the last part of our time just giving you an opportunity to get into an actual text of Scripture and to do this sort of process, to make as many observations as you can. So some things to look for. You've already kind of laid the groundwork. You've prayed. You've kind of established the context, the literary context of knowing what genre is it, the historical context, figuring out where is this uh, occurring within redemptive history. Obviously, you read the Old Testament different than you read the New Testament uh, and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and then you've started with the obvious, asking some of those who, what, when, where, why questions. What are some of the things that you are intended to uh, observe? So the first one, contrast and comparison. So biblical authors will often use this uh, technique of contrast or comparison in order to make a point, right? So contrasts are an evaluation of things that are different, often using a word like but, Comparisons are an evaluation of similar items, often with words like or as or something like that. We talked about that a contrast last week, right? We talked about both a contrast and similarity, actually, last week. Uh, we saw that, in a sense, all of us uh, were born into this condition like the rest of mankind, of death and depravity and disobedience and so forth. So that was the similarity. That was the comparison We, like the rest of mankind, were dead in our sins. But God, that's how we ended it last week. That's how we'll begin it, uh, the sermon this week. And so there's this contrast there. I want to give you a text there. It's in your notes. And notice this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What's that next two words? Not like 
the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For, so you have that not like, and then for, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer... So that's kind of like the not like. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So how would you kind of uh, summarize what is uh, the contrast between the old covenant that he's talking about and the new covenant that he's talking about? That's part of it. There, yeah, that's the second part. So what Dan said, what Brian said, put those two together and that's what you got. All of God's people in order to be a covenant community. So think of Old Testament Israel, right? You have Israel, this ethnic group. All of them are in some sort of covenant with God, right? Are all of them believers though? No. Now think about the new covenant, the covenantal people of God. If you are in covenant with God in the new covenant sense, are you a believer? Yes, everybody is. Right? This is why uh, we're not paedo-baptist, uh, because we believe that in order to be a member of the covenant community, you have to be an actual uh, believer. The text right there gives us this contrast between the old covenant and uh, the new covenant. And so that's one of the things that you're to make observations about. There's the contrast that exists within Uh, This one. Let me give you another one, a comparison from Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as, comparison term, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. What's the comparison between Jesus and Moses there? Jesus and Moses are both faithful, right? Jesus and Moses are both faithful. Now, right after that, that's a comparison. Right after that, there's a contrast between Jesus and Moses, And that contrast is uh, Moses is kind of the steward of the house. Jesus is the builder of the house. All right? This is, by the way, this is a a passage that's really helpful if you want to understand some of the smaller, lesser-known passages that prove the uh, deity of uh, Jesus. It's just said that Jesus is the builder of the house. And then the next parenthetical thing, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So it's just said Jesus is the builder of the house. The builder of all things is God. That's another sort of lesser known uh, proof text of the deity of Christ. So there's a comparison and a contrast there. Moses and Jesus are both uh, faithful, but Jesus is more faithful. He is more glorious. That, that's something that you'll see over and over and over in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is going to be compared to something. Jesus is like the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is like the sacrificial system. Jesus is like the angels, but he is greater 
in addition. There's comparison and contrast. Does that make sense? That's one of the things that you're looking for as you're making observations. What are the comparisons? Who, who is the author comparing this person or this thing to? And then what's the contrast? In what ways are they dissimilar? Every analogy breaks down at some point. So what are, what are the air, ways in which this breaks down? Another thing that you're looking for, expressions of time. Temporal markers are often really helpful, such as then or after this or until or when to show timing or sequence of events. John 11, 5 through 7, I'll just give you one example of where this, uh, you're just making an observation in this, but I'll give you an example of where that observation would later pay off when you were moving into interpretation. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea uh, again, all right? So Jesus loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and yet, whenever he hears that Lazarus is sick, what does he do? He delays, he waits. Now, again, that's a temporal marker uh, in this uh, next section, terms of conclusion or result, we'll see why that's significant. Words such as therefore, for, so that, and for this reason are really important, especially within like uh, Paul's writing and so forth. He's making these arguments. Paul's kind of like a, a lawyer making these sort of uh, really substantial legal arguments within his text. And so uh, these are going to be really important. Anytime the author says for this reason or therefore, you're going to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? What is the purpose behind this? What is the author saying is the reason for what he is saying. So we read this before. Let me read it again. So now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, so for this reason, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, does that seem strange to you? If your friend who you love, you find out they are very sick, near their deathbed, all right? Are you going to say, for this reason, I'm going to wait? Because I love them so much, I'm going to not go see them. I'm not going to get in my car, I'm not going to drive down the street to go see them. I'm going to wait for a couple of days. That should strike you as strange. This is one of the things in observation that's really helpful is if every time that you see something, you think, that's strange. Zach talked about this before. There's a, there's a text in Revelation where it says, uh, an angel's measurement is like a human measurement. You should think, that's strange. Why are they giving me that detail? Why do I need to know that? But this is a place where you think, man, that's a little bit interesting. Because he loved Lazarus, he waited where he was. Why would he wait? That's what you're asking. You're asking the question, why would he wait that you'd get into, into interpretation? Later on, it says, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So on account of and that, these are similar words of conclusion or result uh, or something like that. So we, when we put these together, we see the reason that Jesus delays is because Jesus wants Lazarus to die. And that's fascinating. Jesus delays because he wants Lazarus to die. Why would Jesus want Lazarus to die? So that he could raise him from the dead. 
He knows it's going to be better in the long run for Lazarus to be raised from the dead for his faith, for Mary's faith, for Martha's faith, for the faith of his disciples, and so forth. So this begins to expand now the way that we understand the way Jesus relates to suffering and so forth. How? Just because we've made little observations about time and purpose and results and so forth within the text. Let me give you another thing that you're to look for. Any sort of advice or admonitions or warnings or promises, uh, you'll see this in the book of Hebrews all the time, these warning passages. Hebrews 2.1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's a warning there, lest we drift away from it. We talked about last week how, uh, in essence, the course of this world, life is like kind of a lazy river. And it's not leading towards holiness. It's leading towards disobedience. And that's the same sort of imagery that the author is using here. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Same sort of idea. Hebrews 4.1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So you see, already within these just two chapters, or three chapters, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, we have four of these warnings uh, which are going to be helpful for us to recognize what's the main sort of theme of Hebrews. When you then look later on in the book and you find out the context is that uh, these Hebrews are undergoing some degree of persecution uh, and uh, you kind of begin to understand, okay, well, this is why he would give this warning. Because if you're facing persecution, what's your temptation? To abandon the faith. To go where there's not persecution. If you're, if you're a first century uh, Jewish Christian and you are facing persecution from your Jewish brethren, and they just tell you, if you just go back to Judaism, just renounce Christianity and go back to Judaism, and we won't persecute you. There's going to be a strong temptation for that. So the author is writing these warnings to tell the people not to do that. There's also these promises that you see in Scripture. One of the best places to look for those is like the Sermon on the Mount. You have all the Beatitudes. Every one of the Beatitudes has a, a corresponding uh, promise there that you'll be, uh, you'll be sons of God, that your inheritance is in heaven and so forth. Uh, or moving on later in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 4, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew six eighteen, the same idea, fast in secret, and your Father will reward you. Matthew six nineteen, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but do uh, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. In other words, seek for treasure. The Father is a good Father who gives good gifts to his children. Over and over and over and over and over again, there's going to be this idea of uh, rewards. C.S. Lewis talked about this uh, particular tendency in Scripture and said, uh, the problem is not that we are a people who naturally incline towards rewards. It's that we are... Uh, uh, far too easily pleased with lesser rewards. Uh, it's like if I told you, if you just wait, I'll give you $50 million. You wait one week, I'll give you $50 million, or I can give you $2 today. 
You'd be a fool to say, I'll take the $2 today. Right? And so that's what the scripture over and over and over is going to have. So one of the things that you should be taking note of are these warnings and promises throughout scripture. Another sort of rhetorical device to pay attention to is climax. Does the passage have this point uh, in which the, the text is building and building and building and building and building? Uh, and so the entire Bible, you could say, has a climax in Revelation 21 through 22. Uh, whenever there's this picture of this new heavens and this new earth and God once again dwelling among his people. But we look at that in, in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, God leads his people out uh, of slavery. He leads them uh, through the desert, uh, through the Red Sea, into the desert, and so forth. There's the giving of the Ten Commandments, but then there is this sort of central point, this climax of the book Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's the climax of the book of Exodus because now God is dwelling among his people, which is the unique sort of inheritance of Israel in the Old Testament. Another thing to pay attention to, we have just a few more of these, and then we'll do an exercise, is interchange. This can be really helpful. Oftentimes in the scripture, you'll see this interchange uh, between different elements or different characters or whatever it might be. So if you're reading 1 Samuel, you'll notice there is this interchange that exists between Hannah and her son, who is Samuel, and Eli and his sons, right? So Samuel, this sort of hero of the Old Testament, Eli's sons, these uh, wicked priests, Right? They, they end up being killing, uh, being put to death by the Lord for their disobedience. On the other hand, contrast to that, you have Hannah and her sons. Or we talked about this when we were going through the book of Mark. There's this interchange that exists when Mark's telling the story of uh, Jesus before the high priest and so forth. And it, he goes back and forth between Jesus and what's happening there and Peter. Jesus is making the good confession. Peter is denying Jesus. Jesus is making the good confession. Peter is denying Jesus. He goes back and forth for that sort of rhetorical device so that we are to see this contrast that exists between the two. Another one, cause and effect, is a relationship of cause and effect. We talked about this before uh, in regards to Reformed theology, where uh, whether you uh, believe, uh, whether you tend to be more of a Calvinist, uh, we don't use that word a whole lot, Uh, or an uh, Arminian, both believe that God chooses and we choose. The question is, which one's the cause and which one's the effect? Does God choose those who choose him, or do we choose because God has chosen us? 1 John 5, 1 is really helpful in putting that together for us. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. This is even more clear if you're reading uh, from Greek because of the tenses and so forth, uh, but even with a uh, rudimentary understanding of, of English grammar, uh, which one of those between believes and has been born, which one of those is present tense? Believes. Which one of those is somewhat past tense? Has been born, right? Believes, present tense, has been born, past tense. Uh, In the Greek uh, grammar, it's absolutely clear that there is a relationship between those two verbs and that the has been born is the cause of the belief. 
Uh, it's, a, it's called a perfect tense, and it means there is something that happened in the past with ongoing results, with present results. Those present results are the belief. Because you're born of God, therefore you believe. So that's one of the things that we're to look for, these relationships of cause and effect. We'll go quickly through the next few here. Illustrations. Illustrations. That's a good thing to make observations about, especially like the parables of Jesus. Consider uh, you know, we, we think of par- parables, and they are somewhat compelling and somewhat illustrative for us and somewhat vivid, but how much more vivid would it be if you were actually sitting outside and Jesus says uh, that the kingdom is uh, like a, uh, a net, and you're literally looking out into the Sea of Galilee, and you see fishermen uh, bringing their nets up and so forth, and you see Jesus talking about birds, and there's birds chirping all around and flying through the air, and you see trees, and you see soil, and all these other things that Jesus is using. There's going to be this powerful description there. That's where you can see where illustration and context are going to collide, and you can kind of get this idea uh, of the power that this must have had. Or when Jesus is talking, and he says, the fields are white for harvest, and imagine even uh, the text says that in that moment there were crowds coming out of the city. And you almost get the idea that Jesus is looking with his disciple at the people coming out of the city wearing their white garments. The fields are white with harvest, looking and seeing these people clothed in white coming towards them. This is the power of illustration. Uh, one of the more powerful ones that Paul uses, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize. That's how it was when I was a kid, but I don't think it's like that anymore. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There's this vivid illustration there to be like an Olympic athlete, to be uh, at the peak sort of uh, of your capabilities and abilities and so forth in your uh, discipline of your pursuit of the Lord. And, uh, and so that's much more powerful and compelling than if Paul simply said, yeah, pursue Jesus vigorously or something like that. He gives us this illustration. Repetition. Are there specific words or phrases that are repeated throughout the text? Consider how powerful uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech is. If he would only said the phrase, I have a dream one time, would you remember that phrase? Probably not. But it's the fact that he says it over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, we saw this in the book of Mark. There is a word that's used over and over and over and over again in the book of Mark that helps us to see sort of Mark's personality. That's the word immediately. He uses the word immediately, over and over. Why? Because Mark is this action sort of adventure book. It's not slow and and plotting and dramatic like Matthew and Luke and John and so forth. It's intended to be short and succinct and moving. And so he uses the word immediately and so forth. I think we mentioned this statistics. 42 of the 59 uses of the word immediately or the Greek word uthus. Uh, are used in Mark. 42 out of 59 are used in the shortest gospel, and, uh, and so that's significant. Or Revelation 4.8, when the living creatures are crying out, holy, 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 that's significant. It's, in fact, uh, there's this Hebrew technique, it's called 
doubling. Uh, and, uh, and so oftentimes, uh, they didn't have a word like very. So what they would do is they would double something. And so uh, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, where God promises, surely you will die. In the day that you eat of it, surely you will die. Uh, uh, the way that they express that in Hebrew is actually just death, death. You will die, die. All right? And so you see this all throughout uh, Hebrew literature and so forth where you just double something to emphasize it. This is the only example, uh, this in Revelation, which is, it, which is kind of copying what we see in Isaiah 6, the living creatures crying out, holy, holy, holy. Anytime that you ever see anything tripled. So there's significance there to that repetition. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The word every there is the same Greek word as all. So you abound in all good works and so forth. So this repetition of the idea of all, the context there is giving. You're giving, and what are you receiving? Everything, right? So this repetition is important. Uh, oftentimes that will uh, explicitly give purpose. I gave a couple examples there for the sake of time, won't go through them, but John and 1 John both talk about uh, the explicit purpose for which uh, he wrote uh, those particular books. Questions and answers. Um, Job in particular begins the very first question that God asks in the book of Job. He asks of Satan, he says, where have you been? The very next question he asks is of Satan, and he says, have you considered my servant Job? And then the text ends with Job asking something like 77 rhetorical questions over and 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 over again. He asks these questions. So questions and answers. Paul does this a lot, especially in the book of Romans. He asks these big theological questions as a sort of rhetorical device. Things like, should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Or is God unjust in the work of predestination and election? And his response is, by no means. Um, and then uh, lastly, uh, I'm sorry, two more. Uh, grammatical structures. Identify nouns, verbs, prepositions, adverbs, adjectives, and so forth. How many verbs are in this? How many, sentences, or how many subjects or how many nouns? What's the subject of the verb? What's the object of the verb? All those kinds of things. We did this a little bit in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, uh, where we kind of took a moment and we uh, asked who, what, when, where, why, as it relates to God's choosing, his predestining, his electing purpose. Who is it that predestines? Uh, who is it that is predestined? Why does he do so? When does he do so? Before the foundation of the world, why? In love to the praise of his glorious grace. How? Through adoption, uh, all of these sorts of things. And then lastly, connectives. Uh, any sort of conjunctions and prepositions, those sorts of things. Um, and, uh, and so let me give you one uh, or two examples of this. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, just this verse in particular, look at this next phrase. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Without that for, look at the previous uh, phrase, the firstborn of all creation. A lot of the cults take that phrase and say, see, that's proof that God is created or Jesus is created. 
says he's the firstborn of all creation. That means he's created. Well, Paul has just, simple, uh, just uh, in his language, prohibited us from making that conclusion. How do we know? Because it says the firstborn of creation doesn't mean that he's the first thing that's created. It means for by him all things were created. He is the firstborn in the sense of the Hebrew uh, understanding of a firstborn. The firstborn of a family, what do they receive? They receive the inheritance and everything, right? They are the ones who are going to then lead the family when the patriarch dies. The firstborn son, he is going to then be the leader. And so that's the idea, the imagery. When it says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, it means he's the ruler of all creation. And by him all things were created. You can see this sort of connectives playing out in these if-then relationships throughout the Old Testament there is this consistent refrain, if you obey, then God will bless you. If you obey, then God will bless you. If you will obey, then God will bless you. Is there a sense in which that's true for us? Absolutely, there's a sense in which. But there's a deeper sense that in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the better language is, if God blesses you, then you will obey. There's a primacy to God's blessing God's blessing creates our response. It's not dependent upon our response. We see that over and over with these connectives. So um, I want to give us some time to actually do this work. And, uh, and so in seminary, um, we were given this particular passage, Acts 1.8. You might have done this before. It's kind of a classic passage to kind of work through. Uh, I might have told this story before, but... A uh, professor gave us an assignment, said, here's Acts 1.8. I want you to make 25 observations on it, sent us home, uh, and uh, we came back the next class, turned in our paper, and uh, I mean, I got to 20, and I'm, I'm just struggling. I'm like, there's nothing more here, right? Somehow managed to get to 25, turned in my paper, and uh, I had some buddies and so forth who were like, man, I did 40. I got 40. Uh, then uh, turned in the paper, and then the very next classroom, uh, class day, he says, hey, now I want you to give 25 more. My buddies who said 40, the second time, they only did 25, and uh, they were not going to go above and beyond again. We did 25 more, turned it back in, and he said, now I want you to do 25 more. Right? And he said that he had something like 315 or something, I don't remember the exact number, uh, that he had uh, observed over his years of teaching this text. And so uh, the point is there's always going to be more. It's like you have this uh, wet rag and you're trying to squeeze out water. If you can just squeeze hard enough, there's more left there. It's just going to take more and more and more work and so forth. So I want to spend uh, about uh, 10 minutes. Uh, instead of doing Q&A today, I want to spend about 10 minutes and I want to uh, to just take that time, you're welcome to, to get with someone around you and do this as a kind of a communal thing. I think that would actually be uh, great. If you need to take off because you need to get out for welcoming or anything like that, you're welcome to do so. Uh, but take the next 10 minutes, and I want you to make as many observations as you can on this text, and then we'll have about two minutes or so uh, before we uh, are dismissed uh, to talk about them. So you are free to do that.
All right, let's do some of these together. Um, okay. How many verbs? How many verbs? Verbs. Will receive, has come upon, and will be. Right? So three verbs. Uh, who's speaking here? Jesus, right? Which would be really hard if you're just using my handout. So hopefully you opened up your Bible or your Bible app or whatever it might be and then were able to look at some of the context and so forth. But uh, Jesus is speaking. To whom is he speaking? Yeah, his disciples. Uh, in the context, he's answering a question. What question is that? Yeah, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Um, anybody know how many words are in this verse? 34. Yeah, that's absolutely right. right. So that very well is probably insignificant. But again, the goal is not to, to note what is and is not significant at this point. It very well could be significant. If you're reading uh, Hebrew poetry, it is very significant for you to notice, oh, this verse begins with Aleph, this next one with Beit, this next one with Gimel. This ne- oh, this is an acrostic. It's intended to go in alphabetical order, whatever it might be. It begins with uh, what kind of word? A contrast, right? A conjunction, uh, contrast there. So there is some sort of contrast that exists between this verse and the previous verse. Uh, the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit there is capitalized. So you at least find something about what the interpreters uh, or the uh, translators have determined. Uh, if you're reading in the Greek, you'd note that all of the yous are plural. We don't have a good way in English. Say y'all. Uh, we don't have a real good way in English to note that something is plural, but in the Greek you would have that. Will receive, is that active or passive? Is that something that you do or is done to you? Passive, yeah, yeah. Uh, you note there's a temporal aspect. What temporal word did you see there? Time-related. Will and when, yeah. Uh, there seems to be a timeline between the Spirit giving power and then bearing witness Notice there's a definite article before Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, not just a Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit. Notice all of the geographical markers. How many locations does he mention? Four. What are those? Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, what do you note about those? Is there any sort of movement there? It's expansion, right? You have Jerusalem, which is a city, Judea, which is the surrounding area, Samaria, which is just north, uh, and then to the ends of the earth. Now, what do you know about Samaria? For, if you're a first century Jew, Samaria good, Samaria bad. Bad, right? For Jesus to even mention of bearing witness in Samaria would have been a very revolutionary uh, sort of idea. You'd also note, if you were looking at the greater context, this is the exact progression of the book of Acts. The first seven chapters all take place in Jerusalem. The next few chapters all take place in Judea and Samaria. And then the last 13 or so chapters all take place to the ends of the earth. So it's almost like this book is kind of an outline for the expansion of the gospel through the book of Acts. And uh, so that's interesting. Um, the word power, right? That's a translation of the, the word dunamis we talked about in 
uh, in exegetical fallacies, how uh, some people talk about that as being like dynamite uh, and so forth. But this is an interesting word, power. It's used 10 times in the book of Acts. This would be the kind of observation that you might want to make. It's used 15 times in the book of Luke. We know Luke and Acts are written by the same person. So if you take those two things uh, together, Luke and Acts, that's almost a quarter of all of the uses of this word. So that's probably a fairly significant word uh, for Luke. The same way with the word uh, martyr or witnesses. You will be my witnesses. That word is uh, martyr. And uh, again, we talked about exegetical fallacies. That doesn't mean you'll die necessarily. It just means witness in this context. 13 out of the 35 New Testament uses of the word martyr are used in Acts. You could also note this is the last words that Luke records before the ascension. From the context, we would see the disciples are in Jerusalem. You would also note Jerusalem. What are some things you would note about Jerusalem? These would be observations as well. Jerusalem is where what is? The temple is. It's where what happened to Jesus? It's where he was crucified. Um, this uh, comes in the context of talking about the kingdom. We already said that. Uh, how would you know the date? How would you know when this is taking place? You notice the fact that it's right before he ascended. All right. Elsewhere in the Bible, you would look and you would say, uh, it says that he appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days and then he ascended. So you would know this is happening around the 40th day after Jesus is resurrected and so forth. So uh, that's 27 or so observations. Again, there are 300 and something that you could make. Again, the vast majority of them might, at the end of the day, be insignificant. If you counted all the letters here, that's certainly going to be insignificant because this is English and the Bible's not written in English. But the point is, you're just gathering as much info as possible. Future processes, future steps that we'll work through over the next couple of weeks will help us then to begin to sift and find out what is and is not significant. But let me encourage you, uh, as you're reading the Scripture this next week, whether that's a Bible reading plan or studying for a sermon or going to teach community group, whatever it might be, to at least one point, at one point in the next week, carve out a time where you can sit down and just make observations. Set yourself some sort of lofty goal, maybe 50 or something. Take one passage of Scripture, uh, whether that's one verse or two verses or three verses. Obviously, the more verses, the easier it's going to be for you. But set yourself some sort of goal and then just look. Don't make interpretation. Don't say this is what it means. Just say this is what I see. And note as much as you possibly can. And, uh, and then in the coming weeks, again, we will begin to, to build on to this foundation by helping us to begin to sift through what is and is not uh, relevant. So let me pray for us, and then we will take off. Thanks for uh, braving the weather and the holiday weekend. Uh, we love you. We're grateful for you. <laughs> Father, we love you, and we're grateful for you and for your grace and your mercy to us, and uh, grateful for your word, pray that you would help us, Lord, help us to be faithful, help us to, uh, to, to have a desire and a, uh, a precision and a perseverance to our uh, pursuit of your truth, Lord, that, that we might, like the psalmist, say that it is beautiful and wonderful and that we might seek it like silver and gold. And, uh, and so would you bless us in our desire to be better students of your word, every one of us, Lord, whether uh, we have a... Uh, a doctorate in theology or biblical studies, or we're reading the Bible for the first time. Lord, we need to grow 
And, uh, and so would you help us? I pray now as we go forth uh, into uh, our weekly service that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word and to respond to it accordingly as you uh, deserve with all of our hearts poured out through worship. And, uh, and so bless us today, we ask, uh, knowing that you're good and you do good. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen.